God, for a chance to sing and pray and uh, be reminded and see and listen and be together, we're grateful uh, that we get to do that under your dominion, uh, under and in your care, uh, with you guiding and leading. We thank you for your scriptures, uh, the gift that they are to us of your grace and truth as we open them together now. Uh, we ask that you would enlighten uh, our minds and hearts, draw us to yourself, uh, impart to us the things that you would have us know and become through them. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be forever forgotten. Amen. So again, joyful Advent to you uh, on this Christmas Eve. Uh, we still, it is still Advent, uh, technically, for those of you who keep track of such things, Advent being the season that begins four Sundays before Christmas and goes all the way through the end of Christmas Eve. So technically, we're still in the season of Advent, uh, which we've said uh, is primarily about, historically, about three things, about remembering and walking in the footsteps of the Jewish people who waited for centuries for a Messiah to come, for God's anointed, uh, remembering what it was like for them, that's number one. Two is uh, this time of preparation for our hearts, our minds, our lives to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And then three, looking forward to the coming again of Messiah, to the coming again of Jesus, to the coming again of the one who will reign forevermore. So three things. Uh, this year during Advent, we have uh, decided to sort of delve into and spend all of our Advent on Sunday mornings in the book of Luke chapter one, which is this long 80 verses chapter uh, through which uh, Luke very slowly and meticulously sort of walks us through all that God did in a variety of ways to prepare the world, to prepare his people for the coming of his Messiah, for his coming, for his arrival, for his advent. We talked about how uh, chapter one is so long because Luke is patient uh, and wanting to build interest and anticipation for his people and may, for his audience and maybe to help them remember the long wait of the Jewish people uh, for their Messiah. And so uh, with regard to Luke's narrative, over the last three weeks, we've read and talked about uh, the Jewish priest Zechariah, who along with his wife Elizabeth were well along in years and unable to have children. And we read and talked about Zechariah's encounter with an angel whose name was Gabriel and about Gabriel's message to Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth, very old in her life, would, would soon bear uh, a child, a son for them. Uh, we read and talked about uh, how that interaction went for Zechariah with uh, Gabriel and then about the young uh, Virgin Mary, uh, Elizabeth's uh, distant relative of some sort, who had a, uh, an encounter of her own with the same angel and got a similar message. You will give birth in a supernatural way to a person, a child, a son, whom God would one day use in powerful ways uh, for his plans for the world. Then we talked, uh, read about Mary's visit with her older, uh, or yes, with her older uh, uh, cousin, and then about her reflection on all of that, the pondering of those things in her hearts, uh, often called Elizabeth or Mary's song, the Magnificat, uh, and then finally uh, got to the birth of John. So uh, now uh, picking up the reading in uh, chapter one of Luke's gospel, beginning at 57, verse 57, listen closely, this is God's word. When it was time for Elizabeth, uh, Mary's older relative, to have her baby, she gave birth to her son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. 
On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and uh, they were going to name him after his son, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he, Zechariah, would like to name the child. Zechariah asked for a writing tablet, sort of first century iPad, and to everyone's astonishment, Zechariah wrote, his name is John. It is John. Immediately, Zechariah's mouth was open and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all of these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was clearly with him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, or spoke truth. Praise, to, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He, have, he has raised up a horn, which here symbolizes a strong king. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And then there's this little shift. Uh, Zechariah's uh, song or psalm or praise and prophesying Zechariah had been talking about the long-awaited Messiah, but then there's this little shift. Now he's talking to and about his son. But in doing so, he's really uh, continuing to talk about Jesus, Messiah, because all of his son, John the Baptist, eventually, all of his son's life and ministry and focus is going to be about Messiah. Verse 76. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and, on the shadow, and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit or the spirit. And he, John the Baptist, lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. And I know that's a lot of words. We wanted to kind of finish uh, chapter one in Luke's gospel uh, during Advent just to get it all in. I know it's a lot of words. Uh, what do they all mean? This morning I want to drill down a little bit into one of those words and ask us to set aside, to sort of set aside for a moment a lot of what we've thought maybe or understood about one particular word, and that word is salvation. To set aside kind of the way we've thought about it uh, what we've understood it to mean, how we've used it, how the church has used it. Historically, in uh, most of our growing up, our understanding, Christian circles and the churches we've been a part of, the word salvation has often or usually been understood to mean getting to go to heaven, having one's ticket punched to heaven, having an assurance that one gets to spend eternity up there rather than down there, a little bit more broadly, salvation in our minds today often has referred to being saved from eternal destruction or eternal separation from God. 
acknowledging God's forgiveness and accepting God's offer of eternal life, an eternal life that mostly begins after these bodies are gone, after we die, accomplished somehow through the death of Jesus, salvation. But is this what the scriptures say? Is this what the scriptures teach? I asked a Jewish friend this week, I said to her, how do you understand the term salvation? What do you understand the term salvation to mean? Could you describe or define it for me? And her her response was interesting. She said, I kind of think of it as a Christian word, actually. I I think it's kind of a Christian thing. And I was uh, a little surprised by that. I didn't push back with her. I just wanted to hear uh, her perspective. But the word salvation is very much an Old Testament word. It occurs more often in the Old Testament than the New, though it certainly shows up throughout the New Testament uh, in thin measure. But the word salvation is an Old Testament word and an Old Testament idea occurring most often in the Psalms and in Isaiah, but also in other books. Uh, There and in the rest of the Old Testament, the Hebrew word translated into English as salvation means to rescue. And specifically, if we just take a big across the Old Testament look at it, it means to rescue from sickness or trouble or distress or fear or specifically, most often, to rescue from one's enemies. Enemies. And enemies and their violence. The very first time the word salvation is used in the Old Testament is in the book of Exodus, And it occurs immediately after God has brought his people out of Egypt, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, out of Egypt, where they were in captivity and slavery, and taken them through the Red Sea, for which he parted the waters, safely on the other side, in the wilderness. The Egyptians followed their armies into the Red Sea. And you remember from Sunday school, the water collapses on them and they all die. And immediately after that, Moses who is God's kind of savior figure in the Old Testament, and his sister Miriam sing this song in Exodus 15. I will sing to the Lord, for he is is highly exalted, both, both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. Much later in Israel's history, David, after being rescued from violent people, in this case, King Saul wrote these words, my God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge and my savior. From violent people, you save me. In Psalm 25, we read, brandish spear and javelin against those who pursue me. Say to me, I am your salvation. In Isaiah chapter 33, Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation in times of distress. In Isaiah 49, this is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. Hopefully, you get the idea or some of the idea of this salvation and its richness and its breadth throughout the Old Testament. And then along comes an old Jewish priest, steeped in the scriptures of the the Jewish people, 
and in the traditions and the practices and the thinking and the mindset. Along comes Zechariah, and he sang, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he has said through his holy prophets, as he has said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, John, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of, sin, of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of shalom. And all of a sudden we have before us a different or broader or more holistic or maybe more comprehensive understanding of salvation for which Zechariah praised God and of which he also foretold. Again, the salvation or being saved that has been taught or implied by Christian culture and churches and one another for most of us for most of our lives has been about accepting Jesus as one's personal savior, a phrase that doesn't occur in the Bible, believing that Jesus died on the cross for one's sins, and praying the sinner's prayer, which also doesn't really occur in the Bible, gaining assurance that one will go to heaven after one dies. And while all of these things are important and valid and true, they also may not show the full picture of what God would have us know and understand and experience. So I'm gonna tell the story a little bit differently. About uh, 1400 BC, the Jewish people found themselves as slaves in Egypt. They prayed for relief from their circumstances. God sent them Moses, again, a sort of savior. And Moses led them to freedom through the wilderness for 40 years and then into the promised land, Palestine, where they would be brutally attacked by many of their neighbors, the Philistines, the Amalekites, and others. And so the Jewish people prayed again, save us, rescue us, deliver us. And God sent them a deliverer or savior of sorts to save them or to bring them salvation from their circumstances and their enemies. The Jews eventually faced their most formidable and dangerous enemy ever, the relatively young Assyrian Empire to the north. God save us, they prayed. But God didn't save them that time. The Assyrian Empire easily came down and conquered the northern 10 tribes of Israel and possessed, took possession of their dear land. 150 years later, another empire arose to Israel's east, the Babylonian Empire, and they too threatened what remained of Israel, the southern kingdom known as Judah, and God's people prayed, God save us, rescue us, deliver us, help us. But again, God didn't, not really. And the Babylonian army swept into Judah and swept up to Jerusalem, 
and hauled off into exile Israel's best people, the best, most gifted, talented, richest of their people into exile. And God's people prayed, rescue us, deliver us, save us. And this time God did through another empire that arose, the Medo-Persian Empire, replacing the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians showed God's people mercy. Their king, Cyrus, allowed the Jewish people to return to their land and to rebuild their lives mostly, mostly. But soon along came the Greeks, Alexander the Great, and they ruled over God's people and Judea and Israel. And after the Greeks came the Romans, for hundreds of years, it seems as if the Jewish people were destined to remain under the control of larger and more powerful empires. When would their salvation come? When would their salvation come? So they wondered. When would their liberation arrive? After many centuries, the question of when, after many centuries, the question of when God became the more vexing question of why, why? Why didn't God save them? Why didn't their God, who was good and powerful and strong and loving, why didn't he save them? Why wouldn't he save them this time? Their history was full of stories of God's salvation, but God now seemed deaf to their cries. Why? There was a group of uh, pious, devout people known as the Pharisees. They had an answer. The reason God didn't save the people from oppression, not from hell, but from oppression, was, the Pharisees concluded, because of their sin. If the people would just become more holy and devout, then God would surely save them, the Pharisees rationalized. The Pharisees therefore dedicated themselves to purity, not only for their own sake, but for the salvation of their people from oppression of the Roman Empire from oppression and violence and lack of freedom. Perhaps now for the first time, sin became a concern for the nation of Israel in ways that it hadn't before. And it answered in some ways their question of why or why not. Why doesn't God rescue us? The Pharisees consequently resented anyone who was blatantly or obviously sinful, prostitutes who sinned sexually, tax collectors who cooperated with the oppressors, the drunks who lacked self-control like the Pharisees, the gluttons who, unlike the Pharisees, didn't fast to prove their righteousness or their goodness or their piety. It's their fault that we are oppressed, the Pharisees naturally thought. It's their fault that we are not being saved. And at least they had an answer now for their why question. And then came the remarkable conception of a young Jewish girl named Mary. From Matthew's gospel, but after Joseph had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. And did you notice the shift? A pretty profound shift. He will save people from their what? From their sins. 
For the first time in Jewish history, a promised salvation was not liberation from political enemies or oppression or religious persecution. Instead, as the angel informed Joseph, the rescue of people from their sins would be the prerequisite to any rescue from broader oppression. Zechariah had essentially said or hinted at the same thing in his song when inspired by God's spirit, he sang to give his people a knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. God would save his people from their sins and God would save his people from oppression. And the two might even be related or complementary or one before the other or one as a sign of the other or one as a prelude to the other. And one can see in all of this why the Pharisees were troubled by Jesus and critical of Jesus, yes? The Pharisees were working hard to excise what they considered to be sin from their own lives and they were seeking to weed out of the lives of others every element and iota of what they considered to be sin in the lives of others. Meanwhile, instead of joining the Pharisees in their ethical cleansing, not, not necessarily ethnic, but ethical cleansing, Jesus was kind to the prostitutes. He ate with tax collectors. He was gracious to Roman soldiers and Samaritans and other foreigners and didn't speak enough in the Pharisees' minds about judgment, but instead spoke of mercy and forgiveness. Jesus couldn't be the Messiah the Pharisees figured. He was more like an anti-Messiah. Do you see that? And in some ways, no one was hearing Jesus well. God is interested in and committed to freeing people or liberating people or saving people from all sorts of oppression, political and religious and ethical and psychological and relational and systemic, and you can go on down the line. And salvation from sin and forgiveness of God accomplished through Jesus. To understand salvation as anything less then all of that is to not see the big biblical picture or the whole story. As Jesus himself may have said, as Jesus himself may have said, salvation doesn't mean slitting the throats of the Romans and getting power. Salvation means being liberated from the cycle of violence liberated from the need to be in power. God wants to save you from your present life of hatred and fear and instead reconnect you with God's original plan for the descendants of Abraham. Even as an oppressed people, you can be a blessing, Jesus might have said. Instead of slitting a Roman soldier's throat, carry his pack for him. Jesus did say, Instead of cursing him, pray for him. I am here to save you from the whole system of insults and revenge. Not by giving you political victory so much as you may wish I would. 
And not by telling you to give up on this life and instead focus on salvation from hell after this life, as some people will do in my name, which they have and do. But by giving you permission to start participating, you're participating in God's mission for you and the world right now and start living in this new and better way that is available to you right now in, through, and with me. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is available. I don't know if you've heard this, but I have heard Christians talk about salvations. Anyone ever heard Christians talk about salvations? As if they are a unit of something. As if a salvation is a unit of something. Or as if it's a transaction. Someone, a Christian, may be talking about a big crusade or an outreach event or an altar call or something, and they might say, uh, there were five salvations that night. Five people prayed the sinner's prayer. Uh, Dallas Willard calls this the gospel of sin management or the gospel of the minimal requirements to get into heaven. The gospel of the minimal requirements to get into heaven. There's nothing like that in the scriptures. But such an understanding of salvation seems to miss the point or misunderstand the scriptures or not see the big picture. God has in mind for people far more than just getting one's ticket stamp for heaven after a person dies. God's plans are broader and bigger and even better. And no, no book in the New Testament actually speaks more often of salvation, that word, than the Gospel of Luke. Three times in chapter one, Zechariah's song, and then in chapter two, when the old man Simeon, who's been waiting for the consolation of Israel, encounters the infant Jesus in the temple courts when Jesus' parents brought him there for his dedication, and Simeon declares, Sovereign Lord, now as you have promised, you may now di dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Just want us to hear that and think about that for a moment. And then in chapter three, when John the Baptist declares, every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. What was that? We'll answer it in a moment. And then in chapter 19 of Luke's gospel, the last time it's used in Luke's gospel, more often again than any other book in the New Testament, when Jesus, who had been at the tax collector Zacchaeus' home, and after Zacchaeus announces after their conversations and interaction over a meal, Zacchaeus stands up and announces, today I'm returning and I'm repenting and I'm giving back and I'm restoring and I'm doing restitution in all of these wonderful and amazing and remarkable and transformational ways, all of these things. Jesus announces, today, Salvation has come to this house. Today, salvation has come to this household. What could that mean? And one begins to wonder if salvation is not so much getting one's ticket punched for heaven after one dies or just being rescued from the clenches of one's enemies, but rather being overcome by and immersed oneself in and devoting oneself fully to the Savior, Jesus. Simeon, today I've seen your salvation. What did he see? Who did he see? 
Today salvation has come to your household, Zacchaeus. Who came to his household that day? And maybe it wasn't what as much as it was who. Are you with me? Salvation is not, as it has often been considered, the finish line, right? I got saved, as if that was the finish line, but the starting line. And the introduction to a whole new way of life, again, Jesus calls it the kingdom of God in your midst, around you, available, even in you. Throughout the Old Testament word, the root uh, from which the English word salvation is Yesha, which is obviously related to the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua, from which comes the name Jesus, which means he saves. And so Jesus was, as is easily read into the narratives of Zacchaeus' house, Jesus is salvation. Salvation came to Jesus' house, to Zacchaeus' house, because Jesus came to Zacchaeus' house. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the light, he is the bread, he is the door, he is the gate, he is the good shepherd, he is the resurrection. Salvation is life in him and his kingdom, which he teaches, what he taught. It was how he leads, it was what he did with his life, it was the example that he gave, it was how he treated people, it was what he did. Salvation. And so in closing, I just a few more passages from the New Testament. Let's hear this new or broader or different understanding of salvation in some familiar verses. Peter in Acts 4. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Maybe that's not the ticket being stamped but maybe it's this holistic, comprehensive life into which we're being invited that's different than anything else that can be experienced in heaven or on earth. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And maybe that's not just a message that has only to do with someone praying a sinner's prayer but that salvation may also mean a freedom from oppression or freedom from hate or freedom from insults or freedom from a commitment to, to re- revenge or a whole bunch of other things. It may mean a water well. It may mean food for the other. Paul, at the beginning of Romans chapter one, we know this verse, think about it in a different way. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. Paul, from a prison to the Philippians. Therefore, my dear brothers, my friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Are we working out getting to heaven? Are we figuring out how to live in the kingdom that's available and to which God's invited us in our midst right here, right now, available to all who will be a part? 
Let's pray. God is the author of the book of Hebrews wrote, uh, how great is salvation. How great is salvation. Here at the end of Advent, we remember the Jews yearning for salvation. The nation, peoples for centuries. We prepare to celebrate the birth of Savior who would save people from their sins and save people from themselves and save people from all kinds of things and save them to you, for you, for your glory. And we look forward to the coming again of Savior. And until then, may your salvation come upon your people and come upon the earth through him through your spirit, through your word, through your truth, and through your grace. We pray with hope and great expectation and confidence and joy. In the name of Jesus, amen.